Welcome back everyone to another podcast from The Guiding Light. This week I have Jeff and Alicia Stamp who live over in Kyrgyzstan. Guys, how are you doing and welcome to the podcast. Hey Shane, how are you buddy? I'm good. How are things over there? Thank you for being here. Oh, glad to be here. Uh, well, today's been kind of warm. August arrived with a bit of a vengeance here. But um, otherwise, doing pretty well, I think. Wonderful. And we're going to talk about Kyrgyzstan in a little bit. I'd like to get some lead-up information and talk to you guys about what made you guys move abroad from the U.S. Well, once upon a time, I've been through here earlier. Uh, Alicia and I were both in the military, American military, back in the day. And I've been through Kyrgyzstan on, on my travels in years past. But at the time, I couldn't get out to go see Kyrgyzstan. I remember looking out at the mountains thinking, wow, wishing I could go see that, and I couldn't. Well, years later, uh, we had retired from the service, and I was talking to Alicia, and we were talking about, okay, so where do we go and what do we do now? And one of the places that came up was Kyrgyzstan, because... Well, one of its advantages is it looks a lot like Colorado, climate's a lot like Colorado, feels a lot like it, and we thought this could be a good place for us. We've both been to college in Colorado, Alicia mostly grew up there, and since then, living here, going around here, at least in terms of climate, mountains and all that, 100% correct on that. Very, very much like like the Rockies we knew back home. Awesome. and. I have actually visited you guys over there, and the one thing I would say that's different, besides the culture, but landscape-wise, is the complete and utter lack of trees in that area. That's true, but it's funny you, you mention that, but I've asked about that since you were here, buddy, and because there are forests along the borders, uh, all of the country's national borders, with Kazakhstan, China, Tajikistan, and so I was asking some friends about that, and the reason apparently comes down to it's not deforestation or anything. It's local microclimate in the center of the country, which is, guess where we took you? The center of the country. Central Naran. And the mountains prevent water, rain clouds basically, from getting into that part of the country. Everything gets dumped to snow and ice on the outskirts. Yeah, so just recently we took a family camping trip to the northern part of the country up against the Kazakh border, and it was completely forested, and it was really lovely. It was like, uh, looked a little bit like going through Rocky Mountain National Park. Real pretty country. Wonderful. Well, since we're talking right now about climate and stuff, why don't you tell us where exactly Kyrgyzstan is? Because I know a lot of people have not even heard of the country, much less where it is. Well, Kyrgyzstan is about as central in Central Asia as you can get. You know, if you were to take a map of Asia and put your thumb down right smack in the middle, you probably would be pretty close. It's uh, got Kazakhstan on the north, China on the east, Tajikistan to the south, uh, Uzbekistan off over to the uh, west. It's as central as you're going to get. So if you're looking for beachfront property, you might have a hard time, other than, of course, the lakes. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, so you guys have been abroad um, for, what, 10 years now? No, about seven and change. Okay. Yeah. About, yeah. That, about seven. Since 2011. Since 2011. And I wanted to talk about the kids real quick and what you 
think about them growing up abroad, homeschooling, the advantages, disadvantages, any information you have for the listeners? Sure. Well, um, we were homeschooling before we came overseas, and I actually think that one of the benefits for that has been continuity for the kids with school, that as we've moved um, to a couple different locations, um, there's been, you know, that's one of the things that hasn't changed for them, whereas the culture and the friends and where they've lived have changed, at least for in the school realm, we've been able to keep that the same, and I think that that's really helped them to transition um, a little bit more easily since school is such a a big part of your growing up years. Um, so that's been a good thing. Um, we really enjoyed that time with our kids. Um, the kids are growing up together, not separate in different classes. Our kids are two years apart. So this year we have a 10th grader, an 8th grader, and a 6th grader. Um, so it's been really kind of fascinating to watch them um, engage with each other um, over you know history discussions and books that they've read and things like that. That's been enjoyable. Um, you know, it has been difficult, uh, you know, friend-wise, um, but I think that anybody who has served in the military or with the government and has moved, um, and even with, you know, civilian organizations, people move, and um, that's just part of uh, transition, is uh, losing friends and being away from family. That That's kind of probably one of the hardest things, is being away from family, especially over holidays and special occasions. And the benefit for living abroad for kids? Oh, sure. Oh, I'm sorry. We were talking about the, um, the continuity with homeschool, and I got distracted there. Um, yeah, so just meeting so many different kinds of people and being able to see so many different kinds of things that normally you just read about in books, um, different cultures, different thoughts and ideas that you can actually touch stuff. It's living history. It's, um, you know, it's actually really seeing the world um, outside of a classroom, and I think that that's been a, a great benefit for them. And I agree 100% with you. Most of the people that I meet, they are homeschooling on boats, of course, but it seems like the kids are just so much more well-rounded when they have that hands-on and outside-the-classroom activities that go with it. Sure, absolutely. There's a lot of truth to that. You know, when, when you've taught for a while, you realize that, you know, you can only do so much in the classroom before you really, okay, there's always going to be somebody who if i really want them to get it they have they've, they've got to be able to see it touch it you know kind of be there to experiencing it and that is something that living abroad really does offer that it's an advantage that unfortunately a lot of a lot of kids in america just or wherever your home happens to be just aren't going to be able to have it you know so, so we feel we feel very fortunate that we're able to give our children that kind of a, an experience, and because we know that not everybody can do that, that is, but it's it's a huge benefit. It's been a great a great thing for them. Well, I would agree with you also, and the other side of it is they're getting a you know obviously they're getting the American perspective having two American parents, but they're getting a perspective outside of America, which is vastly different, and I would think very useful as they move into adulthood. Yeah, absolutely. That's very true. Yeah, getting to meet people that have grown up in a completely different culture and a different era, um, you know, they have very different perspectives on the way things have happened. So we, we can have, we, we've had some interesting family discussions on things uh, historical <laughs> due to, you know, just some local friends and, and their, their perspective, especially about like the 90s and things that happened after the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, and that's lo uh, local perspectives from our Kyrgyz friends, for example, but there's also other expats, you know, perhaps they're from Europe or, 
or who knows where. And some of their perspectives can vary as well. So, you know, you put a half a dozen people in a room, you get a half a dozen different, uh, half a dozen different takes on whatever it is you might be talking about. It can be really interesting. I understand. I actually had a group of Russians on the boat, and we were talking about World War II and the Cold War. And it was amazing how, and the Russians had a lot to do with both those, but the perspective from them versus the American perspective that I grew up with. So it was very interesting hearing both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Alicia, real quick before we finish up the homeschooling part, what program do you use? And I'm going to put the link in the resource section of this. But just so other people know, and how have you liked it, and what have you done to tweak the program? Sure. I mean, in today's day and age, there are so many different homeschool programs. So I think the first thing is you've got to kind of know what kind of a teacher you are and what kind of a student you've got, to, so you can kind of figure out what you want to use, because otherwise it can be very overwhelming. Our overarching curriculum that we use is Tapestry of Grace. And uh, I really like it because it's a chronological approach to history, and it ties in all the humanities to the historical timeline. Um, so you're studying literature, geography, philosophy, government, worldview, everything tied into history, and you're learning it chronologically. Um, and all of our kids are learning the same time period, but they have assignments that are um, appropriate for their own learning level. So as a family or on the dinner table or wherever we are, we can have discussions because we're all studying the same thing, and everybody can add into the conversation, and I really like that. Um, on the side, the children do each do their own math, their own science, um, and then some individual stuff. One of our kids really likes to write and has done some extra writing programs. One of our kids is into computer programming, and our youngest, our daughter, is really into art and, um, and also animal-type stuff. So she's been doing, like, some 4-H um, stuff about dogs and horses and that kind of thing. So that's another really neat benefit is we can really kind of customize our program and, and uh, work towards our children's interests and, uh, and giftings. Wonderful. And I appreciate all that information on um, homeschooling. And I know a lot of our listeners will appreciate that. And I'll put, like I said, I'll put the links in the resource section. No, I was going to say, I guess I, I, for math, we use Math through C, if you're interested in that. For science, we've used a couple different programs. Currently, we're using some Apologia. Um, and then, um, you know, for grammar, we've used uh, first language lessons, analytical grammar, um, you know, that kind of thing. And then obviously we do language, and uh, so we've done some online with that, but mostly we have a tutor that comes into the home to work with us for language. And we're doing Russian currently. We've done Kyrgyz in the past. Well, you know, I appreciate you saying language because that was going to be the next thing I wanted to ask you about. The official languages of Kyrgyzstan are Russian and Kyrg, is that correct? Kyrg is, but they're trying to move towards a third official language. English uh, as part of their where they want to go economically to develop the country economically so there's a huge push on uh, to develop English especially in the school system uh, it, it's been rather remarkable to see that it's just been in the past couple of years that they've really tried to do that but yeah pretty much everyone in the city in the big cities is, are going to speak a mixture of Kyrgyz and Russian and then out in the countryside, it's mostly Kyrgyz. Well, and the one thing I remember was when I came and visited you guys, 
Y'all weren't quite fluent yet, but you were definitely doing very well with Kyrgyz. And it was quite funny watching people in the cities because you would go up and talk to them in Kyrgyz and they were expecting this foreigner at the very least to speak Russian and you knew no Russian and you really perplexed them, didn't you? Yeah, that still happens quite a bit. Uh, I've got a, you know, I call it the two-minute conversational delay. It happens all the time. I wait for them to get over their shock that this face that you don't expect to speak Kyrgyz to... Oh my gosh, the, the foreigner really does speak Kyrgyz. And then once they get over their surprise, all of a sudden it's, hey! And, you know, all of a sudden I've got a new best friend. Um, you, you get used to it, but it is good for a laugh of, uh, when it happens all the same. And at this point, would you call both you and Alicia, would you all be fluent in Kyrgyz? Our Kyrgyz is pretty good. Uh, Alicia's been focusing a little bit more on Russian with her staying in town. My Kyrgyz has really gotten to work out this uh, the past several months with the tourist season on because mostly I take my clients out into the countryside where Kyrgyz is, is gonna be the more common tongue in many ways. And how long, what was it, two, three years before you felt fluent in the language? Uh, before we were really conversational, I would say about a year and a quarter, year and a half. Uh, that was with a lot of work that first time. That's it's, it's gad fits and starts. What about the kids? What languages have they learned and how have they done with it? Because I've been told that kids pick it up even quicker than adults. Yeah, that's an interesting one. We've definitely been reading some books on that. So our kids did initially pick um, Kyrgyz up very quickly, um, especially our youngest, our daughter. Um, and then when we went home last year for about eight months, um, just like kids learn things quickly, they forget things quickly. Um, Jeff and I kept our Kyrgyz. Our children lost it. Um, and that was a surprise to us. We were not expecting that. Um, and so we have started back over again with Russian, and so they're slowly picking that up. Now, we're not putting the same amount of time into Russian that we put into Kyrgyz, uh, just because now it's running the business, and the kids are older, so school's taking a little bit longer, um, and that kind of thing, but I figure we've got time, we'll get there. And Jeff, you mentioned that you've been out in the country. Why don't you explain to everybody what you do over there and why you're in the country so much? Well, uh, I'm the founder of a company called Tigon Expeditions, and Tigon is the name, it's what they call a local breed of Kyrgyz sighthound. You see them out up, up in the high country. Uh, they're used to hunt wolves and to protect their sheep. They look like a, a long-haired greyhound, yeah, if you can imagine that. Um, with a, the distinguishing characteristic is actually a, a curly tail that it can't uncurl. The dog's tailbones are fused. It couldn't uncurl it if it wanted to. Anyway, so I named my, uh, named my company after the dogs. I guess you could make a joke about the firm going to the dogs, but okay. But what we do is we do adventure travel. Uh, so we do excursions with horses. We do uh, some hunting. We do fishing. Uh, we do archaeological excursions, uh, trekking, again, either on, either on foot or with horses. Uh, all that sort of thing. So, again, adventure tourism, not, you know, yeah, cultural stuff, we do quite a bit of that, but not the uh, get on and off the Greyhound bus, take your pictures, and head off to your next 
five-star hotel. I, I can arrange the hotels if folks want, but that's usually not what we're doing. It's yurt stays and climbing mountain passes on horseback, and yeah, that's kind of what we do. And to all the listeners, I can tell you, a lot of the countries I go to, I try to write travel guides and I do travel videos for, and I did that for Kyrgyzstan. But the biggest advice I can give you is simply go directly to Jeff. He is going to give you the most information and take you to the most out-of-the-way places. And in fact, he and I share a very big interest in history, although he is even more into it. And Jeff, you used to be a teacher at the Air Force Academy for History, correct? Yep. Uh, Assistant Professor of History back in the day. So I really enjoyed it. I got to teach it. I did that for several years. And uh, now I get to indulge one of my great academic passions, you might say, which is Central Asian history on a pretty regular basis. But one of the cool things about this, Shane, if I may say so myself, and I do, is that here I don't just read about it. It's not just in books. It's, it's not it, you know, ready for the next journal article. I get to see it. I get to live it. I get to touch it. You know, when I take someone out and we go into a yurt, they're building yurts more or less the same way they've been built for the past 2,400 years. About the only huge change, so to speak, is they've added uh, stoves instead of the central fire pit. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that we get to do here. It's it's pretty cool. Well, I agree 100% with you, and that's how I feel traveling anywhere is you actually get to touch and feel that history and that culture but since we're on that why don't you give us a condensed version of the history of Kyrgyzstan so we all have a perspective of what we're going to talk about when you talk about going out and the culture and that type of thing well the Kyrgyz were a nomadic people group up until less than a hundred years ago they were shepherds and they would simply move their sheep from one grazing area to another following the seasons and their people have been doing that for centuries if not for millennia now the area itself has traded hands under various imperial powers for the past several centuries actually the past several thousand years they did enjoy a period of independence under a leader named manas a couple of hundred years ago but uh, more recently, it was for under first. The area was uh, under Imperial Russia in the 19th century, and then uh, the Bolsheviks came to power in the early 20th. So Kyrgyzstan itself became an independent nation state uh, for the first time in a very long time. And that was due to the collapse of the Soviet Union, correct? Correct, correct. Since then, they've been building an independent way uh, for themselves out here. Uh, the country is a democracy, and they're quite proud of that fact. Uh, now, it's had some fits and starts, so to speak, and some economic difficulties, but they're, they're really trying to find a way forward. And we're going to talk more about the culture, but would it be fair to say it's similar to the Mongolian culture as far as the yurts and the herding and all that stuff? Uh, you'll find that there's a lot of, of the, what they call the nomadic people groups across Central Asia. The Turkic people groups and uh, the Mongolians all have a number of certain common characteristics. And you could argue about the source of that. You could say, there are some who might say, for example, that that's a product of living on the steppes. Uh, and so it would 
you know, naturally, you would attempt to adapt to your environment somewhat, uh, they would say, and thus you see similar solutions to similar problems. You know, the yurt, for example, is a fantastic solution to living in a, a, as you mentioned earlier, some parts of the country are treeless. Certainly there are more so in other parts of, of Central Asia. Well, the yurt being round, perfectly round, is basically impervious to wind. You know, you could have high winds out there, and it's just simply going to ignore it. And that's without the advantage of guy wires. So, uh, great for an area where you don't have a lot of wind breaks in the form of trees or, or anything like that. The yurt can be made almost entirely out of sheep's felt, which meant that once you got the initial wood frame in place, that's pretty much all the timber you're going to need for years, maybe decades. And the only part that gets worn out, and even that takes years, is the wool felt walls. And these folks were shepherds, so they've got the sheep right there. You just grow more wool, and it's like, okay, time to patch the wall, right? Okay, well, shear the sheep, turn it into felt, problem solved. Yeah, there are similarities, because you're solving a similar, for lack of a better word, you're solving a similar problem set. In terms of resources available, trying, you know, come up with the usual... Uh, food, shelter, clothing, all that sort of thing. Does that make sense? It does. And since we're on the yurt, the two things that I found interesting, and I wanted to elaborate on them because I think other people will too. First off, a yurt is a tent, but unlike tents that we think of, these structures are only semi-movable. They're meant to stay in one area for a long time, correct? Well, that's one of the great secrets to them, one of the great, you know, one of the things that gives them is their magic. They can be taken up and put down by a family in about two hours, so it does take a little longer than maybe your backpacker tent, but you're right, it can be a much more quasi-permanent structure, but they are movable and can be moved, and people do and did. So think of it more in terms of not a permanent tent, but rather a portable house might be a better way of looking at it. In fact, for example, the Kyrgyz word for yurt, the word yurta is Russian, from which we get the English yurt. But the Kyrgyz word for it is bozui, which is actually two words, meaning gray house. That's what color the felt turns after a while on the outside wall of the tent. So it means literally gray house. It's a word for house, hui. Interesting. And the other item that I found interesting when I was with you was felt. I, you know, I've dealt with felt all my life, but the true felt that they had was basically just pressed wool, correct? Correct. That's it. I mean, they, they do, they, they treat it with hot water and then there's a pressing process, but essentially that's what felt is. It's, it's pressed wool. And it lasts for years like that, which just fascinated me. Oh, yeah, very much so. For example, I have one uh, one place where I take my uh, guests in a village that where this family makes skirts. They still make them in their backyard workshop. They've been making them for years. And they've got one that they've got as kind of a demonstration model that they'll have guests sleep in. And that yurt is in fantastic condition it it looks almost new and yet it's been standing there in the family's workshop yard for i think she told me close to 30 years wow 
Yeah, it's just amazing. Now they've added they've added they've added a little bit. They've added a, a synthetic uh, cover to help it with its weatherproofing, but the interior, I mean, it's amazing. The uh, the, the the endurance that they have is really quite surprising. And two more things that I thought were cool about the yurt. Tell me about the central piece of the roof. Okay, glad you asked about that because the it's called a tunduk in Kyrgyz. And it looks like the logo for an Xbox in some ways. It's basically a compression ring. And this is how the yurt stands up without guy wires or central poles or anything. This compression ring puts pressure on the poles that go out to the frame, and then that's what holds the yurt up. But that sounds so clinical when you describe it like that. It really doesn't get across what a tunduk is. If you look at the Kyrgyz national flag, there's a tunduk literally smack in the middle of their flag. It's a common architectural motif across the country in terms of decorations for walls or fences or homes or whatever, because that's what the tunduk is. You see, at one point back in the day before they started using stoves, the tunduk not only holds up the yurt's frame, but it also is the chimney, for lack of a better word. It's the you build the fire right underneath of this thing and then the smoke goes up through the through the tunduk because that's the part you could uncover and that, that acts as a chimney. So the tunduk isn't just the thing holding the yurt together, so to speak. It's also a symbol of hearth and you know the home fires and and home. So they've got in this one wooden object a symbol of home that you know we think of a fireplace or you know maybe a front porch or a rocker or something in, in some parts of america the tunduk is all of that and more and it's only after you've been here and lived here for a while that you really start to grasp how important that is to 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 their to someone's identity and to their idea of what makes home does that make sense it does and the one thing that made me realize how important this one piece of uh, architectural structure was was when you told me that it's one of the prized possessions that is inherited down the generational lines very much so you know as an example and I'll, I'll try to compress the story a little bit I went with a friend of mine to visit his home village well now he lives in Bishkek here in the capital city and uh, he's prospered in business I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that he's, he's done alright by it um, you know, and so he's building a new house for his family, and you know he's made it right. Well, when we went to go back and visit his home village, we he said, "Hey Jeff, do you mind if we bring something back to Bishkek?" I said, "Sure, it's fine. What what do you got?" It was a tunduk that had been in his family for generations, and he really, really, really wanted to bring this tunduk back to his new house here in Bishkek. And it's pretty cool. I've seen it now. He finished his house, and he had the tunduk because it's circular. He had it wired up as an electric chandelier. And so now it's got pride of place in his new home. And so that kind of that kind of explains this is what the tunduk is. Even in you know a modern businessman, a successful businessman, he still wanted this family heirloom, this tunduk, in his house. That's awesome. I love it. What what can you tell any other cultural things you can tell us about the Kirk people or Kyrgyzstan itself? 
besides the yurt they are shepherds and mostly sheep which the fireplace itself is all sheep dung correct that tends to be what the, what they use because especially in the summertime they'll t- uh, you know most of the shepherds will take their sheep up to high alpine pastures called gylos and in those gylos as you've already observed there isn't a lot of other fuel so what they'll do is they'll collect sheep dung and store it they'll actually you know kind of pick it up and process it into like blocks and then that's what they burn in the stoves for both cooking and for heating at night because obviously up in the mountains it can get chilly at night even in the summertime uh so the sheep provide obviously food they provide wool for both clothing and uh for rugs that go on the on the ground for the walls of the tent itself and they provide the fuel that heats the the yurt itself so the vast majority of what you know your basic requirements are in life can all be had and are had from their sheep now they also raise cattle and goats the other uh, the other animal that occupies a pride of place in kyrgyz culture would probably be the horse uh they're very 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 fond of their horses this is very much an equestrian culture it's it's funny how many of their i guess you'd call them uh what are they called ethno sports but so many of the culturally important sports like uh, kokburu and so forth are all based on horseback. Uh, they've got, they call it goat polo, but basically it's you know, a game played on horseback. They do wrestling on horseback. The list goes on and on and on. So to say that the Kyrgyz, uh, Kyrgyz culture is an equestrian or horse-centered culture is putting it very, very mildly. I'm going to... I assume the horses are a little bit better than the horses you and I rode with the boys. You're correct in that account. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was one particular uh, one particular person whom I don't think I'll be renting horses from again, and I haven't had that trouble since. I'm pretty sure my horse's name was about to be Glue. <laughs> yeah, they, they those were not exactly highly motivated animals <laughs> but uh, occasionally you will run into that they don't they, they try to use the calmest horses they can find for for tourists uh, I think that particular the person we rented from that time was uh, overdoing it <laughs> uh, I really haven't had that same challenge to the, to the to that extent but yeah I appreciate it but I remember how frustrating that one afternoon was oh it was just being there was awesome and later that night i got one of my favorite photos and it was just you me the boys and a bunch of kyrgyz people around a table inside of a yurt ten thousand feet above sea level and all we're doing is we're playing cards i don't even remember what game but my friend saw that photo and he's like only you would find yourself in this situation and just nonchalantly playing cards (laughs) it was a good time buddy it was going back to the horses can you and i only ask because i find it very fascinating tell me more about this goat polo okay kokburu or ulak tartish in kyrgyz it means goat struggle i've heard it described similarly but i think it was was it the washington post and i i'm inclined to agree with it picture rugby on horseback with a goat for the ball with the difference being that after you play the game then the ball becomes dinner Um, that's probably one of the closest descriptions I can come to it it's fascinating to watch it is it's a tough sport it is a tough sport 
but it's it's a lot of fun to watch and it is certainly one of the sports that the Kyrgyz have a great deal of pride in. It's also going to be one of the centerpieces of the World Nomad Games, which think of it as an Olympics for nomad sports, nomadic people groups type sports. Nomad Games happens every two years, correct? Yep, it does. So this year it's in September of 2018. And tell us some of the games that they'll be doing in some of the countries that will be participating. Well, some of the games include, like we've already talked about, uh, Ulak Tardash, or its, its more common name in the region, is uh, Kokburu, which is, like I said, kind of like picture rugby on horseback, trying to get a goat into a, a goal, a, a circular goal, uh, to at either end of the field. And interestingly enough, the name for the goal is called a Kazan. You're trying to get the goat into the Kazan. Well, Kazan is also the word for pot. So literally, you're trying to put the goat into the pot. So that's uh, Kokburu. That's uh, a lot of fun. They'll be wrestling on, on horseback. And the idea is basically to pull the guy out of the saddle. There will be Salbarun competitions, which are take their traditions from ancient nomadic hunting traditions, which is basically sort of like a triathlon for archery from horseback. You know, like archery isn't hard enough. They do it from horseback at a gallop. Training the dogs to chase and retrieve game, and then hunting with eagles. You know, for those uh, folks who enjoy the idea of falconry, they don't use falcons here. They use full-grown golden eagles uh, done with trained animals. Just magnificent to watch. Utterly magnificent to watch. And a variety of others as well, uh, of other sports. There's a type of wrestling on the ground called uh, tayak tartish, or stick struggle, stick wrestling. There are several within the overall Nomad Games category. Lots and lots of fun to watch. Just fascinating to see and learn about, I think. And what countries would you expect to be there, or what peoples? Pretty much every country in Central Asia and a few you might not expect. So uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, China, Mongolia, Believe it or not, at the last games, uh, an American team showed up. Not a very big team, and most of the guys that showed up had never played before in almost any of these sports or any of them in their lives. But I think a bunch of them were Texans, and I think some of them had participated in American rodeo sports. And so when they got here, I, they felt maybe a little more at home than you might you might think. And they had a steep learning curve, but they did all right. They did all right. They didn't come in dead last, for example, which... Uh, uh, which I thought was a pleasant surprise. And yeah, it's got to be embarrassing to the team that did come in dead last to lose to a bunch of Americans that aren't nomads. <laughs> I, I don't know who, who had that dubious distinction, but you're right. You almost got to feel bad for them, right? Hmm. Okay, so the Nomad Games, and they sound fascinating, and I hope to get over there and see those. So anybody interested in that, you should definitely go during that time period. Anything else with the Kyrgyz culture and people that you would like to share? And one thing I found interesting was most of the people look Asian, but it was just as common to find a tall blonde that you would see in Sweden or so. Is that correct? One of the things about Central Asia that helps to remember uh, that folks, if they remember it helps them, I should say, is that it's Central Asia. You know, like the old joke they used to say about, what is it, Times Square, 42nd Broadway, something like that. You hang out there long enough, you meet everyone you ever knew. Well, 
That's kind of Central Asia. At one point or another, everybody has been through town, right? And so you do get a fascinating mixture uh, in among the Kyrgyz, among uh, folks who live here. You see a fascinating mixture of ethnicities. Uh, so much so, and I remember having this discussion with a friend of mine here. For example, about 500 years ago, there was a, a, an emissary from the Pope in Rome to the Imperial Chinese court, would have been the Ming Dynasty at the time, I think, uh, Friar Carpini, and he wrote about his travels across Central Asia, and he describes meeting the Kyrgyz, and he describes them as blue-eyed redheads. Wow, okay. And so, <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but at one point or another, you know, how many different people groups have come through Central Asia? It's in the kind of the middle of almost everything, right? And, well, uh, shall we say some folks left a little bit of themselves behind? Hmm. Um, and so you do get an incredible, incredible mixture here. Most of that was due to the Silk Road, correct? A lot of it probably was. You know, if, if you were going from the Mediterranean to China or vice versa, you came through Central Asia for a long time, pretty much up until Columbus. This was how you did it. And so that explains a lot of the uh, different ethnicities that you'll that you'll find here in Kyrgyzstan, is the trade routes, and occasionally the uh, military campaigns that would follow in their wake that came through Central Asia that would follow the various Silk Roads. You know, we use the term the Silk Road, but it really was a network of caravan routes of, of trade routes that kind of crisscrossed the whole region, basically running back and forth between the Mediterranean and China. And they were just—they were basically trails that got through the mountain passes and to the different cities and and forts, correct? Right. They cut across the steppes, the mountains, wherever. There was no one silk route, but that was basically the idea. They were—they would go from one city or one caravanserai, basically a caravan hostel, so to speak, to another, all along the very long way from basically the eastern Mediterranean to Imperial China. Excellent. And as we're getting to the time that we're going to be wrapping up, any other information or tidbits that you would like to share about Kyrgyzstan? Central Asian history is one of the things that's fascinating because you can just, you talk about the ebb and flow of peoples, the ebb and flow of empires. You stick around here long enough, you're going to see a lot. The cool thing about being here and seeing it is that the best way to learn about it if you find it interesting, which obviously I do, is to come and see it. Is don't just read about it, don't just pick up a book or, or pop in a, a DVD, but come out and see it, live it, talk to people out here. Come and see a way of life that in many ways hasn't changed for millennia. Oh, some things are different. You know, you find shepherds with cell phones, pretty much all of them have one. But for example, they're still herding sheep and the design of the saddle hasn't changed in I don't know how long. So. That, to me, is one of the more fascinating opportunities that we have to be able to reach out and touch a way of life that has withstood the test of time when so many other things that we know haven't. I agree. And the other part, and not just Kyrgyzstan, but all of Central Asia, which was a very nomadic people, the concept that we have of borders nowadays is a very new concept, relatively speaking, for that entire region, correct? I 
would say so. I mean, they, well, they tend to think regionally, especially nomadic peoples, because, again, it's the sedentary peoples, the city builders and the settled-down farmers, who really developed the concept of, okay, this is the line on the map, and you stay on that side of the line, and I stay on this side of the line. Whereas nomadic peoples tend to think more in terms of, dude, I move the grass here in the summer, move to this grass here in the summer, and I move to this grass back over here in the winter, because that's where the grass is best because that's what the sheep got to eat what you know so that is a comparatively new concept to to the various nomadic peoples that inhabited central asia for a very very long time it's one of those fundamental differences that between a, what they call a sedentary people and a nomadic people that it really takes a while to get over that kind of culture shock to, to realize wow that's a really different way of thinking about things and I agree, and you find that around the world in different regions, and it's, like you said, it's between the sedentary or cities versus the nomadic people. So it's just very fascinating when it comes to borders and how new some are and how ancient some are. Well, you, you put your thumb, so to speak, on one of the classic clashes of civilizations, you might say, one of the classic struggles has been going on for thousands of years, especially across Eurasia the you know nomadic versus sedentary peoples uh, for the longest time the nomadic groups really had the upper hand because their way of life you know they bred shepherds but they also their cultures also created hunters which means they created warriors so which tended to give them a real advantage militarily speaking well the advent of advanced organized gunpowder armies that all changed and after that then uh, the various nomadic groups of Central Asia found themselves living in a world changing much more rapidly than perhaps they might have anticipated. With that, I think we could wrap up this discussion about Kyrgyzstan. Would you agree? I think we can be good for right now, buddy. Obviously, I can keep going and keep going. Well, fascinating country, and if anybody wants to go, like I said, you need to contact Jeff, and I will put his website down below. Jeff and Alicia, I truly appreciate you joining me for this Guiding Light podcast. Everyone, this is Captain Shane saying fair winds and following seas.